sa la verità ma o ma o c'è chi riesce a sopportar ma o ma o sono tutti in guerra e non si sa che cosa mai succederà ma o ma o del mondo cosa ne sarà ma o ma o se tu lo sai dicelo un po' Back. Welcome to episode four of Two or Three Things I Know. It's called four because it's been four months since we've recorded. It's been kind of embarrassing. I feel bad about it. We have kind of slowly been working our way through topic ideas. Life has also been... Both of us have had intermittent life problems and job shit. We both moved. Tons of crap that also, in my case, won't color my experience of multiple films covering queer people leaving their parents' house. That totally won't color how I feel this week. But yeah, we are back. We were going to do this like last week to go behind the curtain but i had a cold like a really really bad cold for a couple days i had like covid not too long ago i've still not had covid i'm shocked by that i was like oh i can't believe i haven't had it and then like the day after i test positive i've mostly been living the shut-in lifestyle so i'm not actually that shocked i've actually been like out and about quite a bit especially in the first half of the summer but I only got it after I moved back in with my mom because she lives with her husband, my stepdad, who's a school teacher. And if anyone's going to get COVID, it's a school teacher in September. Oh, yeah. And at that point, it was only a matter of time. Yeah, I was kind of out and about when I was in Toronto, where I got to see God told me to at the review. Todd told me to. We will probably at some point have to do a Larry Cohen episode just because he's fascinating. But he's not who we're covering today. We are covering... The one, the only. I mean, you've read the episode title, you know who it is. One of the most important figures in new queer cinema. If you asked someone to name a gay man who made movies. I would name Fassbender, but an an American gay man who made movies? Or John Waters, but we're not talking about John Waters. I would think of Roland Emmerich, actually. He is gay, fun fact. But it's not what we're doing here today. We're talking about the one, the only Todd Haynes. I feel like he doesn't really need an introduction for our audience. I mean, I feel like even normies know about Todd Haynes. I mean, Carol was fucking massive, like, less than a decade ago. Carol, he did that Velvet Underground documentary. Yeah, I don't have Apple TV, so I didn't get to watch it. It's getting a DVD release, so I'll buy it. Todd Haynes, who is... Well, now he's only the first alive filmmaker we've covered because Godard died. Oh shit, that's true. He's the only living guy we've covered so far. We didn't really get to acknowledge Godard dying, but that was actually, unironically, I took that really rough. We were literally talking on that episode about, oh, you know, Godard, he's never gonna die. That was a shockingly rough experience for the both of us, I think. But with Haynes, I think Haynes is probably the figure of new queer cinema who managed to have a career outside of it, or like, to have a career that surpassed it. Because like, you read about most like new queer guys, they make like one movie, and then it's like, oh, this was a massive hit, and then they like never did anything again. So Todd Haynes is remarkable. Or they kind of have reasonably successful careers, but they kind of have a niche audience, which isn't a bad thing, but it's like... You gotta feel for, like, Cheryl Dunn, or Dunya, however you say her name, who makes The Watermelon Woods. It's, like, one of the greatest movies ever made, in my opinion. No, that movie's lovely, and then her short films are also lovely, but, you know, she's not really 
super mainstream, which is sad. Haynes, for whatever reason, more than anyone else in that scene, except maybe Greg Araki, managed to develop a sort of mainstream cultural footprint for reasons that I think I actually find kind of hard to explain because he is an extremely expressionist filmmaker. For someone who's made reasonably popular films, at least among a certain demographic, he's done some like remarkably avant-garde stuff especially early in his career even within the more mainstream work there is a degree of avant-garde experimentation the one film i don't think you could make that case for is his most recent fictional film dark waters which is a good film that being said i love dark waters yeah dark waters is a good movie it's really good but i still get freaked out cooking with non-stick pans it's very clearly of a different tenor than something like say for velvet goldmine or especially a superstar the Karen Carpenter story. So we should probably talk about a superstar first, just for the sake of chronology. Todd Haynes made this student film. He studied, uh, he had an undergrad in art and semiotics at Brown. Least surprising Todd Haynes fact. His films are permeated with that kind of art nerd shit that I adore, and semiotics and kind of cultural theory, for lack of a better term. I mean, like, half of his movies are just about musicians. There's a bit in Velvet Goldmine that includes a quote from from the American classicist Norman O. Brown, who wrote probably one of the most influential American books on psychoanalysis. He is very much working within that niche. He's wearing his influences on his sleeve. And then he made a short film when he was in an MFA program called Superstar. So he was a master's student when he made this. So we don't have to feel bad. Our respective 22-year-old selves are doing fine. Except neither of us are at Brown, though. Superstar is a movie in which a gay man in his 20s displays a remarkable amount of empathy about having an eating disorder. <laughs> it's probably, like, one of the most harrowing and disturbing films ever made. It's shockingly raw. It would be really easy to read the Barbies as like a Brechtian alienation effect. And I mean, they kind of are, but like- I feel like their purpose is like, from a practical standpoint, it's cheaper to just buy a bag of Barbies from a thrift store than it is to hire a cast and crew. Obviously, there's the whole Brechtian alienation thing. And then there's sort of the ironic repurposing of these toys. And it's not just like any fucking toy. If it was with Lego, it wouldn't have had the same impact. But because it uses Barbies, which are famously unrealistic in terms of their proportions, it's kind of... There's an irony there in that the film is literally about, like, fascism of the body. Yeah, Barbie as probably the toy which is emblematic of the ideals of american or western or whatever you want to call it femininity and then repurposing them to tell this extremely dark story about anorexia and literally shaving down the doll of karen carpenter as you're doing it and that's also not something you could do with physical actors especially on a low budget you can't just shave down a person at least not without having lasting effects on the person. Um, not every actor is Christian Bale. You could do it with Christian Bale, but that's about it. What makes the film, I think, interesting, among many other things, is that it manages to historically situate the Carpenters, an act that especially at the time was very easily dismissed as this sort of kitschy social conservative band, which wasn't reflective of the times they were living in. Whereas I think Haynes, through the film, basically makes a case that they were reflective of the times they were living in, both for ill and for good, particularly for ill. Them representing the idealized kind of social 
social conservative nuclear family in contrast to in contrast to like punk all that stuff that was going on at the time as well yeah that was you know progressive that was left-leaning was concerned with the liberation of sexuality the carpenters for a lot of people would have represented okay now we're back to the real stuff we're back to the wholesome stuff they watch their own tv special and it ends with them saying god bless you this sort of seemingly apolitical but actually deeply conservative type of thing is sort of what the carpenters represented Karen Carford also just had a wonderful voice. You can listen to other soft rock that came out in the 70s. It's not that good. But a lot of this, like, Closer to You or whatever, a lot of that stuff is just heartrending. I think Haynes is capable of recognizing kind of both sides of Carpenter, both the conservatism that sort of constrained her and also the beauty and the talent of her at the same time. There's sort of like a tragedy in what happened to her. That's like a really banal statement, but he sort of recognizes like the sort of pain in her voice, if that makes sense. Yeah, he shows that the art she was making was not purely sterile. It was, on some level, reflective of how she felt about the world. It was kind of a cry for help. But yeah, that's a lot of what makes the film very interesting. And also just the way he edits it is really remarkable. And the way he like spices in shots of people's actual hands is like uncanny in a way that I think really works. There's a harrowing cut from a plate of food to a box of laxatives and just like those extremely unsubtle but very powerful gestures. The film, if it were in the hands of a less talented filmmaker, if it were in the hands of someone who wasn't a gay art student, it would have come across as ham-fisted or worse, trying to be sort of ironic, but... Yeah, there's not a lot of irony in film. (laughs) It comes across as very sincere. Which is, I think, what makes it particularly defensible. Not just defensible, but great as a work of art. It's one of my favorite films. Depending on how I'm feeling, really any of Todd Haynes' movies that we're talking about could be my favorite of his movies. Just he's an incredible filmmaker. I think Superstar is also exceptionally raw in a way that his later films, by virtue of being made for more money, can't be. And and Superstar feels, even just watching it on a shitty YouTube rip, and we should probably talk a little bit about why it's only available as a shitty YouTube rip. The copy that we're watching on YouTube is almost certainly the single best quality version of it that you can find. It's never gotten a wide release because on one hand you have like the car Carpenter's lawyers saying, don't use our fucking music. And on the other hand, you have Mattel, who makes Barbie, saying, don't use our fucking dolls. He's being attacked on all sides by the copyright police, so it was never given a wide release. You know, it was played for classes. It's been played in, like, indie student films, indie student film festival type of things. Um, And, like, obviously you can just find it on YouTube because... That's how the internet works, but it's never gotten a proper wide release. It's a shame. I think it's exceptional. The crying shame is when you're watching the YouTube rip and you can like barely make out the text on screen. Yeah, because there's a lot of really interesting use of intertitles in the film. And unfortunately, a lot of them are just rendered unreadable due to the state of the film. I'm sure someone who's seen the film properly could write them all out. I mean, I've heard that there's talks about it getting a restoration, which would be great. That would be amazing. I would kill for that. 
Although at the same time, it does have a sort of mystique in the sense that it only exists as a bootleg. It's something that you can only really watch if you want to see it, basically. Yeah, it's not something you can just accidentally stumble into. The bootleg does kind of contribute to the mystique of what could be in this film. And I remember before seeing it, reading about it years and years ago, before ever realizing that it was just on YouTube, being like, what could this thing be that the man doesn't want me to see? It's interesting how he's sort of taking these properties that are very clearly copyright protected and just fucking around and doing his own thing with them. And also just the sort of like mishmash of two different properties and using them to create something interesting. I know this is veering dangerously close into the Dante's Inferno is fan fiction school of thought. It's not exactly fan fiction, though. If you actually want to believe that musicians and celebrities and mass culture are the mythology of the modern age, then a mythology requires reinterpretation and recontextualization and also criticism. So many people will say, like, you know, oh, superheroes or pop musicians or whatever, they're religion now. That's really easy to say. Taines is one of the few people who I think has taken that notion genuinely seriously and has made films that explore, okay, if David Bowie is functionally a religious figure, if Karen Carpenter is basically a, a martyr, what does that tell us? Instead of just the, the difference I would draw with calling like Dante or like the works of John Milton fan fiction is that becomes a kind of point of the end of the conversation that becomes like, oh, these are fan fiction. That's how they're classified. Boom. Whereas Haynes is going, oh, these are our collective mythologies. What does that mean? And I think so many of his films are about tearing apart what that means and going, if the tragic death of Karen Carpenter is a functionally religious event for so many people, what does that tell us about how American culture perceives femininity and how it perceives the correct values of the family? Because that's another thing that the film... On the topic of femininity, I guess, and sort of culture, I do think that the film does really, really portray a sort of hypocrisy in the way that Karen Carpenter was viewed by the media. And this definitely extends to just the way that eating disorders are sort of treated by both cultural and medical societies, I guess. In that one minute, they're like calling her fat. And then like a couple of years later, when she dies of anorexia, the same papers are like talking about how tragic it is. Yeah, it sort of reflects the really fraught position. The way people are classified as like thin or fat in this context, it's just irrational. Like it doesn't have any basis in like genuine concern for people's health, as we're so often told. It's cruelty. It's a desire to inform hegemonic norms as to how people should look. At least in the 70s and 80s, it was a lot more honest because there wasn't as much fear-mongering about the obesity epidemic. And with Karen Carpenter, no one was saying, oh, I'm worried that her blood pressure is too high or her cholesterol is too high. It was literally, she does not look good in this dress. She needs to lose weight because she does not look good. There's an honesty to that. It's really, like, cruel and horrible, but it's honest, at least. And she also represents the toxic influence of the American family on people where she is so constrained by both the need to live up to the idealized social conservative vision of American femininity, which is not just enforced by the media or culture, it's also enforced by her fucking parents. Um, it's enforced by the kind of religious and political and social structures she finds herself in. A lot of films are about that, but I think very few of them cut so deep. Every fucking year, there's a new movie that's like, what if the American dream is a sham? That was the, the marketing for, what was that? Uh, 
don't worry, darling, or whatever. There was a lot of the marketing that was like, oh, you know, the 50s. What if they weren't that great? We already have Douglas Sirk. We don't need anyone else to tell us that. We already have Douglas Sirk and Nicholas Ray. It's such a facile finding, generally. But one that I think is very popular because it's true on some level. The most atrocious example, obviously, is something like American Beauty. Awful film. And I think something like Superstar represents the sort of antithesis. It's entirely sincere. It's entirely experimental in its sensibilities. It's not as tearjerker. It's not forcing you to have these emotions. These are coming upon very genuinely in something like Superstar. There's no real need to force emotions in telling the story of a woman who died of anorexia, because just presenting it matter-of-factly, which the film doesn't necessarily do, it obviously is like a fictionalized retelling, but it's not sensational, it's just kind of, here's what happened, we might not have all the details 100% exactly right, but, you know, it's just sort of stating, in a sort of abstract way, of course, what happened, and that in and of itself is tragic. There's no real need to shoehorn in any stuff telling you how tragic it is, because in and of itself, it's tragic. It's entirely genuine, and it also doesn't pull punches, which I think is the other thing that would differentiate it from a lot of bad movies about, like, oh, what if the family is bad? Because this movie is just entirely merciless in its portrayal. There is no redemption for anyone in the movie. A bad movie about this would offer some sort of condolence at the end, or go, oh, at least we still have each other, whatever the fuck. But whereas this, it's just these institutions, family, social and political institutions, killed her, basically. And the blood is on its hands, and it will keep going regardless. For a film of its time, which it was like late 80s, there's not necessarily interrogation, but definitely exploration of like the psychological aspect of eating disorders. Even though it does obviously acknowledge that pressure to stay thin is a big contributing factor, because it was for Karen Carpenter, as it is for many people, it also sort of interrogates that there's something on a deeper psychological level that drives it, which I feel like that's not talked about as much, even like in contemporary stuff about eating disorders, but certainly not at the time when, like, even acknowledging it was kind of, no one really wanted to acknowledge it. The quote from the intertitle about the sort of becoming, like, a fascist with regards to the body, and also just the performance of suffering. The fascist and the starvation victim something about that because you're sort of carrying out that fascistic starvation abuse on yourself just that sort of portrayal and like understanding of that sort of suffering and also like sort of setting all that stuff against the backdrop of like an abundance of food following the war that's really interesting it makes the whole karen carpenter thing it puts it into a historical context that I don't think it normally would be. It's no longer just a myth. It's no longer a piece of tabloid mythology. It becomes this actual event that happened to a real person, which makes it way, way, way harder to process. Obviously, there's a lot of tabloidy writings and depictions of Karen Carpenter, but I think this is the one that is probably the best because it manages to place Karen Carpenter in a historical context. And it does so horrifically, and it's not something that is easy to do. Like, Haynes is kind of swinging at all fences. Every institution of American society is culpable in the death of Karen Garvey. They, in some sense, killed her. 
and we have to kind of reckon with this fact. And these institutions, in whatever forms they exist today, still do these things, and still, there are still constraining conservative familial relations that slowly eat people aside. Some of those people do develop eating disorders. People do still have unhealthy obsession with celebrities being these perfect angels that will save us. And none of it gets better, or at least has gotten better. And now there's sort of like this hypocrisy. We sort of put on a smile and say we're embracing people's natural bodies, unless we don't like them, though. It's kind of the unspoken part. Like I said earlier, back then there was at least an honesty about it. It's not even that the standard has gotten, it hasn't gone away at all. It's just maybe, you know, slightly less strict and fascist it's a bit like misogyny in general or where it's become more euphemistic by and large it's not particularly culturally acceptable to just say that you think women deserve to be in the kitchen in most contexts but people still enact these things even if they you know would on some level disavow them and i know people could tell me and don't and believe me i know that there are people who do literally say those things still but it's not hegemonic in the same way that's not necessarily what all or even most misogynists are like. It's like with transphobia. There are, you know, Tucker Carlson, J.K. Rowling types who are very explicitly transphobic, but there's also, like, much subtler forms of bias that doesn't really get talked about as much because it's not as hyper-visible to cis people. J.K. Rowling telling a trans woman, you're not a woman, you're a man. That's, like, anyone can see that's transphobic. There's plenty of transphobia that a decent cis person might not pick up on unless they're, like, really keeping their eyes peeled. What Superstar really does show is the power of all of these unconscious, often, social norms. I don't think Karen Carpenter's parents in the film, or in real life for that matter, were thinking on the terms of, we want to make her anorexic, obviously, but... There's the scene where they're having dinner, and they're talking about, like... 112 pounds and not an ounce more like that's a celebration and you see that constantly in eating disorder treatment where gaining weight is acceptable but only to like literally the minimum threshold her parents are in a lot of senses destroying her and they're also controlling her they're saying oh you can't move there you can't and as the film points out this is stuff that contributes to eating disorders Forcing people to eat against their will doesn't help, if anything exacerbates it. Karen's search for independence is denied on the grounds of her eating disorder, basically, but the only thing that would actually help her eating disorder is independence, and her continued kind of forced dependence on her parents only exacerbates the thing. Yeah, because you're a grown woman and you want to move out of your parents house and you want to kind of you know rebel and they're forcing you to eat and what's a way to rebel against being forced to eat it's to not eat and that kind of reinforces the eating disorder obviously and her desire to just live independently on her own is mostly denied both due to the pressures of a music career and the pressures of family life. And it's just, it's really hard not to just be like, oh, these things killed her. I'm not just being polemical when I say this. I do genuinely believe that. Just sort of the hypocrisy of culture. I mean, part of it is just the state of eating disorder treatment, which, let's be clear, has barely gotten better since the 70s. Um, just because people are still so afraid to admit that gaining weight is a good thing 
but like they'll kind of say for someone who's like very clearly malnourished that it might be a good thing but once they're like barely not emaciated they kind of like they don't want you to get too used to being able to eat more i think a genuine reckoning would also do as the film does and sort of put the rise in anorexia in a historical context it would go okay what were the social factors that led to more and more cases of this basically that's something that would require a genuine and in my mind very deep critique of patriarchy and capitalism and the ideals of femininity and all that but these are not conversations that you can have in a very deep and intelligent way that is necessary in order to actually change things it's honestly just very depressed but i think it's a depressing ending in the case of superstar that i think is entirely earned it would be horribly dishonest to make a movie about karen carpenter and not have it end in some sort of grand tragedy it would just be doing a disservice are you saying that the fact that she died really young because of an eating disorder isn't tragic? There's no point in even bothering to make it not tragic. The other thing that I think is really relevant in the film is the usage of Richard Nixon as a figure, and also the footage from the Vietnam War, which is shown in the film. Yeah, because that was kind of the big thing culturally that was going on in the 70s was the Vietnam War, and there's the sort of case not quite being made but sort of like acknowledged that stuff like the carpenters was almost a distraction from the horrors that america was doing it's like oh look how wholesome america is yeah and it represented the sort of antithesis of other forms of music that were going on at the same time that were much more interested in challenging dominant cultural norms punk rock that kind of thing or like a lot of psychedelic music or just anything more experimental or as we will later discuss someone like david bowie or iggy pop or lou reed all these people who were more interested in expressing in for norms as they relate to gender or sexuality or capitalism really anything but that's the the, the worst of it i think that a lot of the reason that the film is so powerful is also Haynes is an expressionist basically as we acknowledge and like his films are not particularly interested in capturing reality in any sense of the term they're interested in capturing very broad feelings in a way similar you can compare him to Cirque almost he literally remade all that heaven allows you can't not compare him to Cirque or you could compare him to Murnau or all these other expressionist filmmakers it would be a fallacious criticism of Haynes to be like oh he isn't interested in capturing reality he's interested in these emotions that arise from reality if you want to talk about German filmmakers who Haynes takes a lot of cues from. Yeah, this Fassbender is definitely a reference point. And you definitely see this, I think, of these three films that we're talking about the most in Safe because Safe almost feels very complimentary to Fassbinder's Martha in, you know, this sort of redhead just having all these problems and just not being believed by anyone around her. And then, of course, there's the fact that they both did Janae adaptations within about 10 years of each other. When I was watching Poison, I was just thinking, especially the prison sequence in Poison, I was thinking, oh, this is just like Quirrell. Now, I mean, obviously, it's just Janae likes to write about men in prison, but I mean, there is absolutely no way I will put all the money I have, which is like $300 total, on the fact that Haynes has seen Quirrell probably several times. 
I'm. I will at some point buy the book of interviews he did. I will confirm or deny that. I feel like he's he at some point in his early twenties, much like myself, went full on Fassbinder completionist mode, or at least to the most completionist you could in the pre. I guess at that point, early VHS world. Imagining like a twenty-something Todd Haynes calling around, asking, "Does anyone have a copy of Rio Dos Mortes?" Yeah, it's so much easier now to be a nerd in those ways, because, like, we have the internet now. Even now, some of his stuff was, like, impossibly hard to find. I, I can't imagine what it must have been like for poor Todd Haynes. There was, like, actual film screenings that I imagine you could go to also, but, like, there's so much of that culture that is, even now, really inaccessible, and that's a shame. Superstar, that's an example of a piece of culture that is only accessible through sort of bootleggers and illegal file sharing websites and YouTube and Internet Archive. None of these venues it's been released on are legal necessarily, but... We highly encourage you to pursue them, though. I mean, there's literally no other way to watch it. Like, the absolute most legal way you can watch Superstar is if someone shows you it on VHS and you just have no clue that it's bootlegged. People should definitely check out Superstar. It's on YouTube. You don't really have an excuse. It's on YouTube. Hopefully, it'll get a proper release. It, Richard is no longer alive, right? He's still fucking alive. 75. Okay, he's only 75. Jesus. We should probably pivot to talking about safe at some point. We haven't really touched on poison that much. I feel like Superstar, Safe, and Velvet Goldmine go really well together. Like you said earlier, they're all kind of about fascism. And then Safe and Velvet Goldmine are two branching paths of themes from Superstar, with Safe being about this woman who's trapped in her concern for her health. And then Velvet Goldmine, on the other hand, is about sort of like the fabrication of celebrity. And obviously they're all about fascism. To be honest, I don't particularly care for Poison nearly as much as the other films. It's worth seeing. It's worth seeing. I've seen it twice. I would definitely recommend it. It was the film that put Todd Haynes on the map as this new queer cinema pioneer. I appreciate it more as an intellectual exercise, I think, than I like it as an actual film. Yeah. Safe, on the other hand... Safe is interesting because it's almost subtextually queer, but not overtly queer. I mean, there is a gay character in the movie, and there's obviously, like, the AIDS analogies. Safe is an interesting film because, amongst many other things, it captures... Uh, so let me rephrase that. It would be really easy to make a film in which the Julianne Moore character was a fucking idiot. A kind of mean misogyny could very easily be present in a film like this. Even if her belief about the illness is genuinely kind of delicious. But the film takes seriously. It's very sympathetic in that there are some people, there's sort of two sides to the sympathy. On the one hand, there's the sort of sympathy towards people who have this pathological preoccupation on just health. What would now probably just be called orthorexia, but it's not just about food, it's also about everyday chemicals like perfume, air conditioning, that sort of thing. And then on the other hand, you have people who genuinely do have these reactions to things, who do have weird chemical sensitivities that seem ridiculous to people, but to them, they're like hypersensitive to, you know, certain smells, certain sounds, that sort of thing. Also, what looms large in SAFE is the atmosphere of capitalism. You can very easily understand in the film why someone would be drawn to these kind of insane cult stuff. Particularly the Los Angeles of the film is just 
just exceptionally bleak. And Carol's life is, it's totally just, you sense this emptiness and this sort of ennui, or ennui, I guess. You could compare it to Antonioni, but it's almost bleaker than the vision Antonioni provides. That's interesting that, like, you mentioned Antonioni, because the cinematographer who shot Safe read the script and basically was looking at Red Desert as a reference point oh okay i didn't know that and you can totally see that i was watching the film and i was like literally thinking about red desert because there's a very thematic overlap in these sort of housewivey women who are disconnected who are kind of slowly going insane in this horrible environment and this disconnect is represented through architecture a lot of the time. The factories in Red Desert or... You have the factories of the 60s, which in the late 80s, early 90s are now the mini malls. Yeah. It's like how every fucking city in Ontario has at least one plaza with a Michaels, a Staples, an LCBO. Yeah, basically. But the film also isn't entirely on her side either. The film does understand that a lot of what she's internalizing is basically fascist. The for lack of a better term, cult she joins is basically about how illness is caused by you. There's a sort of you did this to yourself almost thing in that it appears on the surface to be holistic, but then people are kind of just telling her, why can't you just like think your way out of it? Which of course has particular resonance with regards to AIDS and also in the most extreme people in the 80s and 90s saying that AIDS was a judgment from God for the poor decisions of gay people. And what's interesting is the I believe, like, head of the cult, I forget his name and the guy who plays him, straight up says, as a man who's had AIDS and multiple chemical sensitivity, it sort of shows that these attitudes can be perpetuated from within. He denounces promiscuity, amongst many other things. You aren't allowed to have sex at the compound. It's about creating a sterile world that is, in inverted quotes, natural, but is actually highly constructed and highly... Highly constructed, highly unnatural. In the pursuit of inverted quotes naturalness it feels almost the most straightforward structurally of the three films if that makes sense it's shot with real humans and the plot is more or less linear as opposed to superstar which is dolls and velvet gold mine which kind of citizen kane flashbacks all around the place obviously it's not you know your bog standard movie by any stretch i don't want to say it's more accessible because it's also very alienating yeah it's alienating and it also it has a plot but it's also a very slow plot that is about mood and feeling it's a slow plot it's so atmospheric it would not work as a book just because the emotion that is captured or even just the music the soundtrack is incredible which is another thing where it kind of approaches the electronic music in something like red desert these kind of eerie soundscapes that are searching for meaning something seems absent that should be there which it really contributes even though it's not like a horror film obviously it contributes to this sense of horror in the sense that if the film ended with a bunch of people getting stabbed or something or the cult turning out to be doing wicker man shit that would 100 percent follow it would follow i feel like the actual ending is much more effective yeah because it's subtle amongst many other things with Superstar and safe, you have this sort of duology of causes of restrictive eating disorders, basically, even if safe isn't overtly about it. It's on the one hand, you have 
you know, just judgment, your body should not look like this. And then in safe, on the other hand, you don't have really any of that direct talk about what your body should or shouldn't look like. It's much more, you need to do this for the sake of your health. That is front and center in that film. It's not just about eating, like I said, because there's a scene in the hair salon featuring Donna from the West Wing, which... But dieting is a very important aspect of the film, because it's also what... It is. There's the scene in the film where there's this birthday party for one of the housewives' kids. You see one of them offering everyone else cake that she baked, but she doesn't have any. She just has some off of the sheet, but she doesn't get herself a plate. And then when Carol's offered the cake, she's like, oh, I shouldn't. Everyone's always either drinking water or Diet Pepsi. And making cake, but not eating it, is sort of the ideals of femininity in their most pure form. You are performing this domestic labor, making food for the family or whatever, but you also are not partaking in it, so, so you can preserve. You're creating indulgences for other people that you yourself are not allowed to indulge in. Yeah, and that's also just heartbreaking on such a high level. That birthday party scene where, like, the woman, she's put all this, it's not a great cake, but it is, like, a cake that people seem to like, and she's just denying herself it. And there's not even any explicit reason why she's denying it to herself. It's just the assumption that if you are a woman, you are doing these things, you are following these rules, even if, like, you have no real reason to want to lose weight or to want to not eat cake or not eat cake on your kid's birthday. Another, in my mind, crucial scene in this regard is the scene where Carol's son is reading the essay he wrote for school where he talks about gangs killing people and these inverted quotes, black and Chicano gangs that are terrorizing Los Angeles and are slowly seeping into the white parts of Los Angeles. It feels worth mentioning that the main character's last name, her name is literally Carol White. Yeah. It's not very subtle. Most of the people in the film, it's about upper class, white, rich, wellnessy types. And it's about a very sort of specific health preoccupation that these types have. Like, these are the type of people who now would probably be really into Marianne Williamson shit. Or, as other people have joked, QAnon stuff, as bizarre parallels with it. Or tons of other crap out there. I mean, wellness and QAnon, there is sort of a link in that this is what the government doesn't want you to know. This is what medicine doesn't want you to know. It starts out with people who genuinely do have gripes with their doctors. I could tell so many fucking stories. Um, most people could. There's sort of a dissatisfaction people have with the way they're treated, especially people in a situation like Carol's, where they have this chronic condition which is not well understood, you still even now have people talking about how fibromyalgia isn't real. You'll have doctors who believe this shit. People with chronic illnesses are not believed. People who are like larger are told to lose weight even if they come in with a knife wound they gave themselves cooking or something. That's part of the insidiousness of a lot of alternative medicine is that it latches on to people's very real grievances with these institutions and then basically exploits them for it creates their own more concentrated evil form of the same thing. Yeah, it's like you can't trust your doctor, but you can trust this $20 chemical we're selling in like the most expensive store in the mall. The same people that are really into alternative medicine, in inverted quotes, will talk about how like, oh, you know that vaccines, they're a scam, right? And But then they'll be like buying these like absurdly expensive bullshit healing crystals or whatever. And the irony will not register. Don't buy vaccines, buy collagen. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's insidious is especially to get back to women. Women in particular have a hard time with medicine because they're so often disbelieved, they're so often regarded not intellectually capable of conveying how they're feeling. There's like an entire fucking genre of academic studies about just how the history of medicine has never been kind to women. It's therefore pretty easy to see people who are so alienated from society in any real sense. Yeah, Carol's just alienated from everything around her. She doesn't enjoy her relationship with her husband. She doesn't really enjoy any of her hobbies. She doesn't really enjoy her relationship with her stepson. So she doesn't really feel like she has anywhere to turn to, like, you know, fulfill these basic human needs, except for, like, this woo-woo shit. She's also closed off in the rich parts of Los Angeles, safe, in inverted quotes, from, for lack of a more appropriate way of putting this, just blackness or non-whiteness. In this context, these things become contaminating agents, like poverty or non-white people being around you. It becomes so insidious. The film works very well because it's, on the one hand, sympathetic towards her, but it's also realistic about her at the same time. It doesn't take sides ever. Todd Haynes is a very like nuanced filmmaker. He's not super self-righteous, for the lack of a better word. He has a firm moral code, as any decent person should, but he doesn't force you to take sides. In Safe, he's portraying this world that's just kind of miserable on all sides. It's a very cynical film. No one in the film is a good person, basically. Everyone is compromised. Everyone is attempting to do their own ending of the film, where she seals herself off. That, of course, is obviously a relatively on-the-nose critique of capitalism and all that, in going, okay, these institutions as they exist. All these people have these very real feelings of stress and alienation that will never be resolved, and the solutions that they're given will only make them feel worse. As opposed to Velvet Goldenline, which is kind of about fabrication. I'm trying to segue because I've only got so much time. Velvet Goldmine is also a film about liberation. Velvet Goldmine is a movie about the rock star as a sort of liberatory figure. A rock star is a figure one can project on. Because with the Christian Bale character, who this might be my favorite performance of Christian Bale's actually, there's almost this sort of meme of Christian Bale nowadays. Kind of forget that he's this genuinely incredible actor even when he's not actively destroying his own metabolism. Christian Bale, I imagine you would agree with this, but there's a lot of good criticism of method acting as the performance. Well, I mean, there's method acting and then there's... The way, like, Bale or people like DiCaprio or whatever becomes, like, a performance of suffering. A performance of starving yourself. And it becomes its own kind of controlled version of anorexia. I mean, it literally is. If Christian Bale weren't famous, imagine being Christian Bale and having this sort of socially sanctioned way to practice what is basically an eating disorder. Yeah, and I think, like so many method actors, I think that what ends up being obscured is the actual acting talent underneath it. Bale is just, he conveys so much. I love the bit where he's watching the TV with the Brian Slade interview, and he's going, That's me! That's me, Dad! That's me! Oh, that part is so good. 
That's me. That is so good. And I think both of us being queer people, that is a deeply resonant experience. It's a deeply resonant experience. I mean, I watched Velvet Goldmine at a very, very young age. I was 16 or 15 when I watched it for the first time. I wasn't really into movies. I was really into music. So I, in a lot of ways, was that Christian Bale character using these old-timey rock stars as sort of a means of self-discovery and self-expression. That is something that very much resonates. And I think that's kind of why the film is popular, even outside of cinephile audiences, because they see themselves. To sort of talk about the beginning of the film for a second, there's a sort of implication in the movie that gayness is something that comes about from UFOs and is this gifted secret lineage of poetic genius through the stuff with Oscar Wilde. And I think that is particularly a thing also within a lot of nuclear cinema, like Watermelon Woman also, or a lot of films like that become about unearthing a secret gay history your history is not the mainstream history so you have to seek it out yeah where the christian bale character is sort of attempting to unearth the gay history of 70s rock music in a way sort of similar to the cheryl dunn character in watermelon woman that's so much of being gay is about learning to kind of search through the edges of history to find even just the slightest hint of you existing why do you think i'm so obsessed with Fassbender? Yeah, yeah. Like, there's something so exhilarating about that. There's something deeply exhilarating about realizing that you're not the first person to feel these things. I think that feeling of liberation, like, I remember being fucking obsessed with the Velvet Underground and reading about the anti-Warhol mythology, a lot of which, retrospectively, I'm much more cynical about, but we can get at that. Or even just the figure of someone like, not someone acknowledging Velvet Goldmine, but the figure of someone like Candy Darling or all of the trans women who surrounded Andy Warhol were over very influential on me or Lou Reed even like reading about him dealing with like electroshock therapy something that comes up in the film it becomes there's like this almost secret society almost that you can become almost inaugurated into or like listening to like walk on the wild side or whatever the song that everyone knows and feeling very sophisticated in knowing that I know this is about people like me actually but I think the film is also brilliant there's so many stupid like David Bowie taught me it was okay to be weird type things but I think what the film also conveys is the way how the Bowie figure in the film Brian Slade or Bowie in real life essentially pivoted away from that the moment it was socially less acceptable and transforms himself into the 80s pop star you see in Velvet Goldmine who is like an entirely different person who's talking about how great the president is. Another thing I think is really interesting in regards to unearthing this sort of secret history is the fact that most of the music in Velvet Goldmine is covers of actual glam rock songs that are sort of reappropriated as being part of this fictional universe that the film creates which does inevitably clash with an alternate universe where babies on fire by brian eno is the david bowie song an alternate universe where every roxy music song is by david bowie oh, the usage of music in this movie is entirely great i love the placebo cover of bittersweet by roxy music just the use of contemporary rock figures uh, at the time of course like placebo even Radiohead, like Johnny Greenwood, I think, plays guitar. I feel like your ability to enjoy Velvet Goldmine might depend on will you immediately recognize Gimme Danger the moment it starts playing. And also, the film is just full of little gay cultural references, like the band that's called The Flaming Creatures. The record label is called Bijou Records. 
you know, in reference to the gay porn film Bijou. The cover of one of the Brian Slade albums is very consciously copying Jabrave's self-titled album. Just all these nods to gay figures throughout history, which isn't even, of course, mentioning the fact that Oscar Wilde is kind of this alien who blesses people with the ability to be gay. It's just a fascinating sort of universe in the film, and all three of sort of the, like, central male performances are really, really good. This might be Christian Bale's best performance. This is almost certainly Ewan McGregor's best performance. Yeah, probably. I think he's exceptional in the film. And him, Kurt Wilde, who is kind of an amalgam both of Iggy Pop and Lou Reed. Iggy Pop's son, Lou Reed Moon. He's kind of this conflation of the two. Also, when you first see TVI being performed. That, I like how that scene is set up to sort of give the teenagers watching the movie the exact same fucking reaction that the Brian Slade character has, which is just this sort of like shock and awe that something like this can exist. I'm a massive The Stooges fan, unshockingly, and I think the first time you hear the Stooges or the Velvet Underground or those sorts of bands, something opens in you a little bit, at least it did for me, where it's, oh shit, music is allowed to be like this. Yeah, and with Velvet Goldmine, I almost watched it and sort of had a sort of movies are allowed to be like this sort of moment with it. I think it's really great and meta, even if that is just sort of my personal response to the movie. Yeah, I remember similarly being like 14, and I remember the first album I really loved was In Utero by Nirvana. God, I wish I was that cool. I mean, okay, the first album I actually bought was Dookie by Green Day, but the first album I had a deep-seated affection for was In Utero, and hearing something like Radio Friendly Unit Shifter, or even something like Heart Shaped Box or Penny Royalty or whatever, and being like, oh shit, this is what music can sound like. The first album I really, really loved was probably The Black Parade by My Chemical Romance. That's a good album. I like that album. I saw My Chemical Romance not too long ago, because they played Toronto, and and it was a great show. Everyone was sort of having this experience of reliving the discovery of something that was so pivotal to them at such a crucial point in their life. And that's also kind of what Velvet Goldmine is about. Yeah, and it's also about the feeling of betrayal in the case of Bowie, where he becomes the sort of antithesis of what he appeared to be, where the gayness was a mirage. It was a facade, and there's like a lot of speculation about David Bowie's sexuality. Yeah, and it's a topic that is hard to resolve because, you know, he's not alive. I think the what does come across, and I think has been strategically avoided by the Bowie hagiography, has been his more tenuous relationship with gay identification. Nowadays, you see people be like, oh, he was this beautiful star man who taught me it was okay to be weird. Da, 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 da. He also pretended to be a coked up fascist. Yeah, he also did fascism and he also... The pretending part. He pretended to be a fascist. He was certainly coked up. He was, if nothing else, coked up. <laughs> That's the one takeaway from this podcast, Coked Up White Boys. They're everywhere. The film manages to convey simultaneously why you would like David Bowie, but also why you would hate him. After David Bowie died, and that was actually right around the time I first watched this movie, that period of time is very, very ingrained in my mind. There was this sort of reappraisal of, is he problematic? He did have this relationship with 
underage groupies? Was he racist? Was he problematic? Well, he did, you know, like there's just this sort of critique that I also do think that Todd Haynes makes of Bowie. Haynes is focused entirely on the public image of David Bowie and how it shifts. I was not alive in the 1980s, but I can certainly imagine being like a young gay person who really loved the glam rock Bowie records and then heard the sort of like let's dance and been like, what the fuck happened? I mean, I am like that now, but it's not as like bitter because I'm like me on the other hand, I love let's dance. <laughs> I think it's awful. I'm sorry. I own like a vinyl of that record. I love it. <laughs> I'm, like, very establishment. I have a controversial opinion that Bowie did not make a good song after about 1980. Might want to cut that out. Okay, actually, I'm Deranged is good, though, from the Lost Highway soundtrack. <laughs> you would say that. It's good. I have a sucker for, like, industrial. The late 90s Trent Reznor sound is exceptional. Lost Highway, if nothing else, has a great soundtrack. We should talk a little bit more about the filmmaking in Velvet Goldmine, because we haven't really talked about how it is directed. I think it's one of the most beautifully made films ever made. Structurally, it's very much like Citizen Kane, in the sense that we are presented with this figure, and then we are presented by this person who wants to learn about this figure, and he's going around talking to everyone, and what they say is shown in flashback. If I could differentiate from Citizen Kane a little bit, part of it is that our point of view character has a very distinctive personal relationship with the subject, which colors his ability to think about it. What if Citizen Kane, but it wasn't just about Kane, it was also about the deeply personal relationship that the journalist had with this Kane figure? Another scene that I love is when Arthur Stewart is asking for roommates. And he's talking to the band and they're like explaining what they're all about and he says, oh, I, I, I just want to find a room. <laughs> the whole film just looks gorgeous. That shot when it's like spinning around them, which I choose to believe was taken whole cloth from Berlin Alexander Platz because Haynes has cited it as an influence. The whole film is just loaded with these gorgeous pop video-y stuff. It's loaded with different sources of film that are all being pastiche. It's almost like collage-esque. Yeah, there's a lot of collage to it. There's even a scene with Barbies, or like with, I guess, male Barbies. With Ken's. Which is obviously... Yeah, which is obviously a reference. It's a sort of meta callback to Superstar. Also, you get a sense of the hypothetical girl playing with these dolls, developing her own sense of sexuality through that. Yeah, it's great that there's also some Fujoshi representation. Yeah, 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 very important. Good job, we got it. The entire film is just full of these, or it's like the music video that get made in it are all eye-catching. It's kind of the opposite of what a bad biopic is like. A bad biopic is just like, oh, parodied through like Walk Hard or whatever. But this is like the opposite of that. It's not hagiographic. It's not interested in being like, oh, what a cool guy this is. It's more like, here is this guy with an extremely complicated relationship with his audience. It's about the mythology of David Bowie, more so than it is actually about David Bowie. It's about the mythology of the concept of a David Bowie, which is where it differs from Superstar. In that Superstar, while there is using Karen Carpenter to tell a very general story of America, it is whole cloth about Karen Carpenter. While this is not necessarily about David Bowie, Velvet Goldmine is very fragmented. And I think that's what also is characteristically gay about it. As I was talking about earlier with being gay is often about attempting to find yourself within these historical fragments. 
It's like very kitsch, very camp. Yeah, Velvet Goldmine is about, there's all these like historical things that went on and you're slowly trying to piece it together to find yourself within that own history, to find yourself having sex with the Iggy Pop stand-in. While Christian Bale did not undergo any serious physical changes for this movie, he did have sex with Ewan McGregor in real life, so he did get his method acting in. Which is beautiful. I love the supporting performances in that film as well. Tony Collette is excellent in it. You hear about the fucking I am your mother shit so much you forget that she's actually like an incredible actress. Yeah, yeah, she is. Oh. And Eddie Izzard, they're fantastic, obviously. Yeah, as this sort of skeevy presence almost in the film. Used car salesman type. Yeah, yeah, just perfect. Everyone in the film is perfectly cast. Jonathan Riss Myers just has a face that's just perfect for the role. Like a dumb pretty boy who's just thrust into this. You almost get the sense that he's kind of a pawn. It's basically a movie about how the collective mythology of Bowie affects young gay people. This is a totally out of left field comparison. It's, it's a podcast of totally out of left field comparison. The divide between the 70s and the 80s, do you know what it reminds me of a lot? It reminds me a lot of Casino. Yes! Oh my god. It does kind of have that thing where like Casino has the bit where it goes from the Rolling Stones version of I Can't Get No Satisfaction to the Devo cover. And that's something else with the film where all the eras are shot very differently. The film is really good at creating senses of particular historical moments. The 80s is just this depressing alienating whereas the early 70s has this glam and color to it that is entirely drained now we look on the 80s the same way the film looks on the 70s and like current day culture is kind of the drab 80s the 80s as it was experienced if you were alive in the 80s and a gay man yeah you were not certainly not feeling a glitz and glamour and a new morning for america or whatever you were feeling the return of the backlash too the 60s and 70s. If you were gay or a feminist or whatever, you were feeling that whatever marginal social gains were achieved were just gone. This is kind of a connective tissue between all three of the films. The role that the family unit plays in Velvet Goldmine, Christian Bale's character is very clearly sort of sneaking out of home go to the record store there's this great scene where he like runs out of his house and he takes his jacket off he like gets into a more glammy outfit and he also like masturbates to the record he buys basically it's a self-discovery and sort of rebellion against the family unit and literally leaves it which is a parallel also between one of the stories in poison about the boy who like kills his dad and flies away yes todd haynes is very very preoccupied with family i think that's why he's resident because most people have a complicated relationship with their family, especially if you're gay a lot of the time. If you're like gay or trans, even if you have a loving family unit, chances are there's still like some weird feelings going on there. Even if you're like the most heterosexual person in the world. A straight guy like myself. Even if you are Karen Carpenter, but real, like if you are the embodiment of what people thought Karen Carpenter was, chances are you still have a weird relationship with your family. I mean, it's kind of like how Karen Carpenter was, by all accounts. She was beautiful, thin, but not emaciated. Even she was not enough. Yeah, I think that's something that basically everyone can resonate with. You are someone who people could be envious of, but you are not enough. 
across all of the films Haynes makes, there is the pervasive negative influence of the family. I mean, have you seen Far From Heaven? I have not. I should. Have you seen All That Heaven Allows? Have you seen All That Heaven Allows? I have not seen All That Heaven Allows. Oh my gosh. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I will watch both of them. All That Heaven Allows is a monumental film. We will cover it in some capacity. We should at some point do a Haynes sequel. What was Todd Haynes doing after I was born? The birth of the two of us is the important epochal dividing line in the history of cinema. I mean, it was the year 2000, so unironically true. Kane's almost alternate between family, celebrity, family, celebrity. I mean, Dark Waters is kind of a deviation from that. It's a very good film, mind you. Yeah, Dark Waters is good. It's on Canadian Netflix, so you should definitely check it out. I watched it in theaters twice and then pre-ordered the DVD. I was, like, obsessed. It's a really well-made movie, but it's not... I don't think it's characteristic of Haynes as a filmmaker. That's how I... The sort of paranoia about chemicals. It's like orthorexia for men. Part of it is also that Haynes didn't write the film. It's very based on a true story featuring Mark Ruffalo looking at papers and scowling. In worse hands, it would be a TV movie. The film was in good hands. I really hope he returns to fiction filmmaking and writing. I'm sure his Velvet Underground documentary is amazing. Carol was, at one point, and to a lot of people still, is like a very important film. And also a film that probably definitely caused for a lot of People watching it are like, that's me, that's me, Mama. And then I'm Not There is another sort of fragmented celebrity movie, which, you know, Bob Dylan. Yeah, and Bob Dylan also loaded and complicated. Bob Dylan is like David Bowie for straight people. <laughs> Both Dylan and Bowie connect back to Haynes' earliest work, which is a short film he made about Arthur Rimbaud, the poet. Because both Bowie and Dylan are both influenced by Rimbaud. It all kind of goes full circle. It all comes full circle. It all goes back to complicated legacies of 19th century gay poets. I think Haynes is more than anyone else capable of viewing this not on like a... He doesn't view things on like a linear historical level, if that makes sense. He's seeing the complicated intersecting histories that are going on with regards to queerness. Nothing is ever straightforward, and I think that's why Velvet Goldmine needed the Citizen Kane structure. If Velvet Goldmine didn't have the Citizen Kane structure, it would be another fucking biopic. But because it has the Kane structure, it gets to relish in ambiguity and searching for things that you're not supposed to find and uncovering suppressed histories that the people who were involved in don't even want to talk about, and realizing your own complicated interrelation within that. I'm trying to remember the specific Norman Brown quote that pops up in the movie. Let me look it up right now. Meaning is not in things, but in between them. That's like kind of what Richard Carpenter sort of trying to shut down almost the superstar that's almost a sort of trying to avoid this reckoning with what role did he play in his sister's death it's almost his way of avoiding responsibility and then with Mattel, I mean, it's not as personal, but avoiding reckoning with the monster your brand has created. That Norman Brown quote, the meaning is not in things but in between them, feels like the thesis statement of all of Todd Haynes' work. Poison is about the intersection of all of these stories that, on first glance, don't have much to do with each other. Velvet Goldmine is about how all these people's sense of self is formed interrelatedly to each other, and how it's like projected onto people in ways that are not necessarily who they actually are. Safe is about attempting to basically shut off the rest of the world from meaning and attempting to create your own 
hermetically sealed universe. And obviously, Karen Carpenter's Superstar is just about how the interconnectedness of the family unit just destroys you. Todd Haynes is, in my mind, one of the most important living filmmakers ever. And someone who is totally unique, and I'm always excited whenever I find out about whatever he's working on, because I always know it'll be something. He is one of the few people out there who is just, like, his own. He's, like, very much a unique, singular voice who contains multitudes he's very much the brian slade of his time may he live long considering he's the only non-dead guy we've talked about thus far i feel like if anything this podcast is probably good demystifying agent of art cinema i feel like that's the function that we have two people who are extremely casually talking about things that are usually only talked in like academic terms a person who dropped out of three community colleges talking about academic shit this podcast, not to get too self-gratifying here or whatever, I feel like if we're developing a niche here, it's art cinema, but in a way that is, like, accessible. The dirtbag left, but for art house. There's, like, 10,000 podcasts about there that are about, like, horror films being leftist, and I don't have grievances with any of them. We're about how Todd Haynes, the thing that you always knew was smart, is secretly smart. <laughs>